Welcome to the original and the best Power Hour with Alex Burr and Dylan Hughes, members and podcast of the Running Hook Podcast Network. Another edition of the Alex and Dylan Basketball Power Hour. Dylan Hughes, in the tradition of throwing curveballs, when you expect fastballs. Last night, a 14-year-old girl named Zayla Avant-Garde won the script spelling bee. Turns out she is also trying to make the WNBA. She has a Guinness World Record for doing some dribbling trick. Dylan Hughes, my question to you is, could you do as many things as this girl can do? Um, I'm going to leave that, um, open-ended because, you know, I have to become an expert on some more things, take some time. Well, this girl has had some time. Okay. Give me some time. She's only 14. (laughs) Mm, Well, she's got no responsibility. So I was lazy as a kid. I need time to catch up, but are you hating on a 14 year old? No, I am. I appreciate. I saw the the winning she had that little spin after she spelled it right i thought that was great a lot of these kids are taught to be humble fuck it like we're not humble you know you you win a spelling bee you go off so i respected that and she's you know hopefully going to make the league one day i respect it but i'm just saying i need some time to catch up okay i can i can respect that i just needed to make sure you weren't hating on a 14 year old no it's amazing like watch, I saw a clip of her playing basketball. Like sh- there's a chance. I mean, the WNBA is so deep that I can't say for sure. She'll make the league. They need to expand big time because they're like number th- the fever. I saw like a couple months ago, cut their f- third overall pick from 2020 draft. Like, what? yeah. Wait, what was her name? Um, I, I don't remember what her name was. I'll look it up. Fever third pick, but it was, yeah, they cut Lauren Cox. Okay, yeah, I heard that name before. <laughs> they cut her in on June 27th. You know, I'm just going to say this about the Fever. Uh, you know, they're the kings of the WNBA, it seems. Like, they have a top five pick, it seems like, every year. I mean, what the hell? I mean, I don't, I don't know enough about the WNBA, but I'm sure um, our experts would corroborate that because <laughs> they don't seem like they run very well, and they seem like they suck a whole lot, so... <laughs> Who's to say? But hopefully, uh, hopefully, Miss Avant Garde makes the NBA, WNBA someday, and makes it a makes it a cool place. Because she said, uh, I believe I saw her have a quote yesterday that she said um, that the spelling bee was just her hors d'oeuvres. Mm, I'm like, wow. So not only is she very talented at spelling, she's also like probably way smarter than both of us. So. <laughs> Really so good she's, she's gonna be a legend if you say that at 14 that's legendary stuff right there agreed so shout out to zayla avant-garde um to, we're here today to talk about the finals and we're also gonna bury the hawks after a wonderful season um dylan just real before we get into like the specifics of the games what have your thoughts been about the two finals games so far between the bucks and the suns i mean Like, I don't want to come out here with any overreactions because the Suns are supposed to win the first two games, right? They're the home team. 
And the home team, you know, is supposed to win their game. So them going up 2-0, like I predicted before the series, Bucks and seven. And I'm not going to back off of that because of recency bias. Like they could ease. I mean, look at this playoffs thus far. Like we were burying the Clippers when they were down 0-2 to the Mavs. And, you know, they came back. Same thing happened in the second round. They came back. So I'm not going to bury the Bucks yet. I mean, we'll get into a deeper discussion, but it's basically been Giannis and no one else <laughs> to this point. It's It's been a lot of carrying from Giannis despite uh, being injured, especially in game one. So I think the Bucks are in good shape. Like Giannis is going to have two days off now. He just – he was great last night, but you could still tell he wasn't 100%. So the healthier he gets, I think the better shape they'll be in as a team. Yeah. And, I mean, game one – Middleton was good. I mean, he was good in game one. But last night, and we're recording this on Thursday, it'll be out on Friday. Um, middle or Giannis with like, I mean, Dylan, that was all-time performance by Giannis. And if any other buck other than Pat Connaughton stepped up, they win the game. Like Pat Connaughton had a good game last night. Yes. Did he miss some threes? Yes. Pat Connaughton's also a 35% shooter from outside. He you don't expect him to knock in shots. And Dylan, I, I agree. I'm not concerned. I'm still going with Bucks and seven. Like, I still think that there's a shot. If I'm the first of all, DeAndre Ayton looked interesting last night. Well, again, we'll get into this particular to that, but I think the Bucks had something to do with it. I don't think that was just Ayton going reversing, reverting to old tendencies like we talked about. Remember, way back in the first week of the season, we're like, oh, Ayton looks passive. Ayton looks passive. Ayton shot last night. It just didn't look good when he shot it. So I don't think that's all on eight. Um, I don't think Devin Booker shooting seven or 12 from three again. I, I just don't. And then I mean, that looked really good. Um, Chris drew holiday and Chris Paul last night. And I think that there's a really good shot. The bucks come back and I think they win the next two in Milwaukee. Yeah. I mean, and they need to, because, you know, being down Oh two, like, you got to win both of them. Otherwise it's three, one and Hey, three, one is not as crazy as it used to be, but you know, you got to tie it up. So I I think they can definitely pull it off. I mean, we've, we've seen this bucks team struggle already in the playoffs and they've still pulled it out. Um, And yes, they've had some injury luck and they've had some injury luck in this series as well already Uh, major injury luck, but yeah, I, I think, I think they're fine right now. I mean, both of these teams have had incredible injury luck. I mean, I'm sorry. And I know this is a controversial thing to say because the Suns are a great team. But when AD was right, I thought the Lakers were going to win that series. Like, I thought AD was the best player on the floor in those two in game two and three. And then he goes down in game four, their ship, you know, slowly burst into flames. But the Suns have had really good injury luck too. And they've capitalized on it really well. But now the things are starting to turn against them. First, first with Dario Saric and second with Tori, Tori Craig. Let's talk about Saric first. So Saric goes down in game one in like the first half, I want to say, holding his knee. He somehow walks off the court and he's needed. he needs help to get back to the, all the way back to the locker room. But it turns out he tears his ACL. He's definitely done for this series. He's probably done for majority of next season too. I mean, Dylan, this is going to really increase the workload on DeAndre Ayton for the rest of the series. Like he might have to play 45 minutes a game the rest of the series. 
Yeah, that's like the one weakness of the Suns roster is their big depth is not very good. Like Jalen Smith, I, I still think he's going to be fine, but he's just very much a project right now. Frank Kaminsky has actually – this actually might be his best season, <laughs> um, which is kind of funny because he got cut by the Kings in the preseason. Like you would never think um, – if you're cut by the Kings, it's like, okay, maybe my time's done. But he gets picked up by the Suns, and he's been fine. And, you know, that's the guy now. So it's – he's not going to be able to stay out there too long. Like, Aiden's definitely going to have to be out there more. But, you know, Dario Sarge's numbers never looked great. But he just always seemed to hit big shots, like, when they needed him. I mean, the, the pick and roll with him shooting at the top of the key – just killed almost every team and he he may only hit two threes a game but like those two threes were pretty big um and just the general spacing he provided plus his post defense is good and this is something they figured out in minnesota a couple years ago when they traded for they traded jimmy for him and they needed a backup big two and they was like well we'll put sarge to the backup five or backup five we'll put sarge back at five and it was good it worked it's not great but, you know, what he can give you as far as spacing really helps. And the Suns did the same exact thing, and now they lost it. So it's it's going to be interesting. And the Bucks, uh, the Bucks' strength is down low. So that is where it's going to – we might see a pendulum swing, and we saw it swing a little bit last night, I think, um, where, you know, the Bucks have really – impacted them on both ends of the floor. Uh, so if Aiton gets tired at some point in this series, they're in trouble. Yeah. And he was our, I think um, I was listening to uh, Chris Vernon and KOC today and they were brought up like Vernon brought up, like think about what Aiton is dealing with right now. Right. He's dealing with constant punishment from Giannis and Giannis is stronger than Aiton. I think that's becoming increasingly more obvious as the series is going along. Like Giannis, you could tell he's injured because he's not trying those euros. He's not trying those wraparound layups, but he's still just bullying everybody. And then not only are you dealing with Giannis, you're also getting hit by Drew Holiday, one of the strongest guards in the league. You're getting hit by uh, Middleton's pretty strong. Um, PJ Tucker is very strong and also a little crazy. And then Brooke Lopez so you're dealing with you're getting a lot of damage and you're not going to get a whole lot of breaks like you're just he's going to have to play probably I mean I don't think I'm crazy for saying he's probably gonna have to play 45 minutes a game for the rest of the series and avoid getting in foul trouble like he's done a really good job of not getting in foul trouble so far these playoffs I have to give him credit for that but this is where it's going to be okay you have to avoid getting in foul trouble now because we need you for to play 95% of this game yeah, and again, this is where this is why I say the Bucks strength is down low is because they have three guys they can play at center that are going to beat anyone that's not Aiton that is thrown out there. And maybe even Aiton sometimes. Like we talked up the Clippers strategy a lot of going so small, and that's cuz they could cuz Gobert couldn't kill them on offense. And the 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 benefits that the Clippers got on offense outweighed what they gave up on the other end. And the Suns can't just because the Suns have a lot of strength in the middle of their lineup where, you know, the wings they can. And even with Torrey Craig out, like you can throw a bunch of wings out there and be fine. You know, you could throw Jay Crowder at center against a lot of teams in the league, but the Bucks, 
they're just going to feed any one of those guys down low. And we didn't even really see Bobby Portis much last night. Like that's, that's, and that's a guy we saw game one and, you know, other games in this playoffs where he's been awesome. So the Bucks can just constantly throw new guys at them down low and that's going to tire out Aiton. And again, it, it really limits the Suns options. Agreed. Um, let's get, let's get into Tory Craig real quick. I mean, Tory Craig was a huge, I mean, basically the Bucks gave him away from what it sounds like. It was an agent favor to Tory Craig's agent where they were just giving away Tory Craig so he could actually play somewhere. And he became an integral part of the rotation. Like they don't win the Clipper series without Tory Craig. He gave them 15 good minutes on in game one, but he goes down in the, like the first half again, another theme like, and we were talking about before the show, um, Jay Crowder, the only player from last year's playoffs, still in the playoffs. And because Tory Craig goes down with a knee, some kind of knee contusion. And like, I don't know, it didn't look like he tore anything, but he couldn't walk off on his own power. So there's a good chance he doesn't play the rest of the series. And Dylan, Phoenix has had a, like a nine-man rotation the whole playoffs, but they might have to play seven the, the next four games, four or five games. Yeah, and again, like, it's tough because this is a roster of young guys that have the energy but don't have the playoff experience. And then older guys that are tired, like Chris Paul and Jay Crowder. So it's like, you know, when these games start to go on and on and we're in game five, game six, and your rotation's thin, you've got guys that are inexperienced and you've got guys that are tired. It's like, where you know, what are the Suns going to pull from? And again, as you mentioned already, Booker was very, very good last night. Like I was thinking this may be, if not the best, one of the best games I've ever seen him play just all around. I mean, he was phenomenal scoring, passing. Like I just thought he was great. But he has had a lot of stinkers this playoff too. And I would expect at least one of those games in Milwaukee to have that. So, you know, if Devin Booker doesn't play that well last night, the Bucks may pull it off. And, you know, Mikhail Bridges was very good too. But when, you know, if Aiden's tired and Chris Paul is tired and Booker sucks one game, it's, it's over. And they don't have anyone on that bench they can really go to to bring him out of that. So it's, it's going to be interesting. And, and I still think they could pull it off, but it's getting tougher and tougher. Agreed. Um, I think we're ready to go ahead and get into the games, but the injuries for the Suns are massive. And I brought up the seven-man rotation. The Bucks have been playing seven guys basically since the Miami series, like especially since Dante went down. That's a huge loss, but they're they're playing through it. And last night, so okay, the scores for the two games so far: Game One, the Suns won one eighteen to one hundred five. Last night, they won one eighteen to one hundred eight. It feels like the game was a lot closer than ten points. It really does, especially with how well Giannis played. Let's go back to Game One real quick. Um, I know it's been a couple days, but it felt like Giannis was kind of feeling it out. He had twenty points, seventeen rebounds, four assists in Game One, and Chris Paul. Sometimes it feels like Chris Paul can put his foot on the gas pedal and just kill you. That's what he did in game six against the Clippers. And that's what he did in game one against the, against the bucks. He had 32 points, 12 and 19 shooting four to seven from three, like nine assists. I mean, Dylan, sometimes when Chris Paul, like Chris Paul has been iffy these whole playoffs, but they're just games where you're like, Oh my God, 
this is one of the probably 30 best players I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, and you know, the my main takeaway from that first game was the third quarter, I think, is where it really got away from the Bucks, And they were outscored by eight points that quarter, which, you know, they lost by 13. So that was a huge quarter. And, like, what I noticed, because they went into halftime. Let's see. They were down eight. So it's not like, you know, again, eight in the NBA is not a lot. Very easy to close a gap like that. And we saw last night the Bucks. I think the Bucks came into the second half down 14, and they started pulling it back. They never got within five or anything, but they got it to seven and nine. And, you know, it's it just takes one run to close a gap like that. And there was a there was a stretch of maybe five to seven minutes where Giannis was either out or he was just not doing much because there was a lot of defensive attention on him and he was just not feeling it to fight through it. And that's when the Suns took off. And Chris Paul was a huge part of that too. Like Chris Paul definitely has that killer instinct where he can recognize where the moments matter and you got to step on that gas pedal. And yeah, I mean, they killed uh, them in that third quarter. And I think that was the huge separating factor because, you know, even last night, as good as Giannis was, they are packing the paint against him. Like there are some times where there's four guys right there and he has no choice but to kick it out. And when Pat Connaughton's your best shooter, uh, you know, that's that's where the Suns are taking advantage because, again, Chris Middleton was good in the first game, but he still shot below 50%. It's not like he was, you know, incredible or anything. I mean, he was he was good. I'm not going to go to my efficiency thing and say, oh, if you're not above 50%, you suck. But, you know, last night he was worthless, basically. Drew Holiday, like Giannis had had to do that. Um, but, yeah, it's been interesting to watch how the Suns have handled him because even when they go small, which credit to Bud, he's gone small a lot more this series already than I think we've seen And I was kind of always wondering throughout the playoffs if he was saving it. Um, And, you know, against the Nets, we saw it more too. So there's times when he's done it. But even when they go small, they're still packing that pain against him and making the other guys work. So, you know, it's game one, it worked really well. And I think that's why the Suns won that one. Uh, Last night, again, was more just about the other guys on the Bucks not doing much. I mean, so I pulled up the third quarter stats. Chris Paul in 10 minutes had 16 points on six of seven shooting. <laughs> three of three from distance. Like, I felt like anytime the Bucks were trying to surge, because Middleton did most of his damage in the third that game. He had 11 points in the third. So, like, if the other Bucks, so Drew had two, Giannis had three, Tucker had two, and Lopez had six. If any of the other Bucks had stepped up in that quarter, you might have been able to stop the bleeding. But you go into halftime down eight, and then you're down eight in a single quarter. That's 16 going into the fourth. And the Bucs played well in the fourth quarter. You know, they were trying to chip away at the lead, but that, that just was the game. And Drew, and Drew in both these games on offense has been, he's been Drew Bledsoe, basically. I mean, there's really no other way to put it. The defense has been absolutely fucking phenomenal. But the offense has just left, I mean, a lot to be desired might be understated. Like, he's been missing layups. He's been missing wide-open jumpers. And Drew's not a great jump shooter. He never really has been. But, I mean, Dylan, the offense... The offense on the road for Drew has mostly looked listless. 
You know, I'm trying to figure out when you say Drew Bledsoe, if you are meaning Eric Bledsoe or if you're combining Drew Holiday and, and Eric Bledsoe. It's kind of go a, either way. Well, and it's kind of a triple entendre too since Drew Bledsoe, the quarterback for the Patriots. So I'm kind of meaning it. I'm meaning it more in the second way, but, you know, Drew Bledsoe, <laughs> he's, you know, also the uh, the quarterback that got his job taken by Tom Brady. Well, yeah, that's where I was going. Like, I feel like Drew Bledsoe deserves more respect than it would be to call Drew Holiday that in a bad way. And that's what I'm trying to figure out, you know, <laughs> where exactly you were going. Because, listen, Drew Bledsoe lost his job. But I'm pretty sure did he win a Super Bowl or he at least went to one? He went. They went to one in '96. I think they lost to uh, Favre. Yeah. Yep. So they he's a Super Bowl. Like, is Eric Bledsoe? Uh, has he done much to get to the finals? No. Is he going to get to the finals ever? No. And that report of him apparently being upset that his two former teams are there before him is like the most Eric Bledsoe report I've ever seen. Um, but you know, this, this is a really, this network entirely is, uh, anti Eric Bledsoe. So, you know, no, no respect to Eric Bledsoe. There's not too many people in the world who are pro Eric Bledsoe at this point, but (laughs) it's a good point. I I didn't realize you, uh, you know, you love Drew Bledsoe so much. I apologize. Um, Drew Bledsoe is first season out of uh, new England threw for 4,359 yards in 2002. Yeah, I was going to say that's when, like, running was, like, it. Like, if your running back wasn't uh, dead after three years, like, you weren't using him enough. God. But <laughs> to get us back on the tracks, I mean, Drew Holiday, man, just, like, if he plays like this in Milwaukee, do you think it's over for the Bucks? Because – he, he just can't keep doing this. He just can't keep seven, four of 14 in game one, seven of 21 in game two. Like he's just shooting awfully right now and they need him to, I feel, I can't help but feel like they need him to be better if they want to win. Yeah. And the problem is, you know, if, if this is a deep team, like if this is the Suns and like Devin Booker sucks, it's like, just stop shooting, give someone else the ball. The Bucks don't have that luxury because if Drew Holiday stops shooting, then Pat Connaughton is going to start shooting. And, you know, despite last night's great game from Pat, you don't want that. You don't want Pat Connaughton uh, being your second best player every game. So it's, it's really like he has to make shots. There's nothing else you can say. And the thing is, he missed, he's missing easy shots. That's what's troubling if he's jacking up a bunch of threes and missing them, I get that. Like that's kind of his game, but these like, you know, mid range floaters and layups, like he can't miss those, especially fucking 20 times. Like that's, that's going to keep killing them if he keeps doing that. Yeah. And let's just, let's just go ahead and go move on to game two. Cause I feel like our discussion will be more pertinent to game two anyway. So like I said, one eighteen to one Oh eight. And we, I brought up Drew shooting line. But Middleton was 5 of 16 as well. And I went back and I watched all his field goals. And I went and I saw how much of a hand was in his face. We know Chris Middleton can make shots with hands in his face. Like, that's not a big deal. But I think I only saw, like, three shots where he was actually being guarded by Bridges. I kept hearing, oh, Bridges did such a good job on on Middleton last night. But on 
so he took 16 shots. I think I saw maybe like at most four of them were guarded by bridges. He just missed a lot of he. So I did the, um, I, I tracked like contested versus uncontested. I think he only had five uncontested shots the whole night, like five open shots. And even like on the 10 uncontested, even the 10 contested ones, you expect, you expect Middleton to make four of those. Like, go four for 11, four for 10 on contested jumpers. Like, he's that good. And he just missed some shots. He took some puzzling shots, too. But they really, they can't have Drew and Middleton not step up. They need one of them to step up. Yeah, and as I said last podcast, I think Middleton might be their most important player because of the isolation scoring he brings. And all throughout the playoffs, we've seen this dude just kill it at the end of games. And they really needed that last night, you know. And when he gets going, man, he gets going. Like, game one, like you mentioned that third quarter. I mean, him and Chris Paul were just trading. They were trading shots. I mean, as good as the Suns looked, Chris Middleton kept quieting them on the other end. And that's that's what he can do. Like, he's the, he's the one guy on that team that can do that. You know, Giannis is just going to sit in the paint and, like, get layups or fouls. And that's because he's seven foot. But Chris Middleton is, like, you know, getting just really great isolation looks down every time he gets down the court. And last night, it it felt like – I don't know if it felt forced or what, but, like, he just wasn't – he wasn't in rhythm or something. Um, and, you know, it was – again, like, if he's not scoring – 20 points at least they're screwed i mean he scored 11 points last night that's like pathetic even as bad as drew holiday was he was better than that so it's it was a really bad look for middleton and you know shooters and scores have their off nights like i don't expect that to continue but it the bucks really have no choice for it to continue because they're down oh two yeah and here's here's an adjustment i had in mind all right so you brought up tucker and I think that the adjustment might be to not bench Tucker, but reduce his role significantly. I think he just on offense, he clunks everything up and it doesn't like, they're not throwing Trey young on him the way the Hawks did, right? Like Chris Paul's going to get a body into him. Chris Paul can box him out. And if, you know, he's going to flop if PJ tries to do anything about that, like what they were doing against the Hawks was PJ was crashing the offensive glass and that's how he was maintaining viability in the series. I mean, he's not hitting, if he's not hitting corner threes and he's not, then what is he doing on offense? Like it's a legitimate question. Like I would rather see them run that lineup with uh, Lopez instead of Tucker. I think that would be much better in terms of spacing. Like Lopez has been really good from three in these playoffs, like really good. And I think I, I, Dylan, call me crazy. I think I'd rather see them run that Drew, Middleton, Pat, Giannis, Lopez lineup. I mean, Bobby Porras, too, should be yeah. out there more than Tucker. Like, you know, it's kind of funny because I've shit on Bud all season for not playing Giannis at the five enough. And now, and they're in the finals, I actually think that they should stick to the two big lineup because the thing is, both of their bigs are shooters. Portis and Lopez are both shooters. So you have space. You can still have Giannis play a traditional five role, but just have those guys out there because like you're saying Lopez has been a good shooter. Like I think Lopez the past two series, especially 
has just been awesome in general. Like the mm-hmm. numbers may not show it, but he has hit big shots. He's had a bunch of big blocks. Like he, I think he's just been great all around and having him out there with Giannis just gives a team like the, but of the Suns that has that kind of thin depth that the big right now, it just gives them so much trouble. And Bobby Portis, I mean, I think he played, he played five minutes last night. Like that is really bad. Like he, He's been great all season. He's been great all playoffs. And, again, he's a guy that, first of all, good on defense, can shoot, brings energy. Like, what else can you ask for? Tucker is really not bringing any of that. Like, he's bringing defense, but he's not giving you as much effort. He's not giving you as much size. And he's giving you nothing on offense. So, I I think that's definitely probably the easiest pathway for them to score more points because really that's what they need to do. I don't think their defense has been bad. Um, this this Suns team is just really good on offense. They just need to score more points. This The Tucker matchup, this team coming out of the West was probably the worst possibility, right? Let's go, let's go on the, based on the playoff matchups, who is most likely to come out of the West? So we agree on the like one, four, five, eight side of the bracket, the two most likely teams played in the first round in the Clippers and the uh, Mavericks, right? Let's just look at how PJ Tucker match up, matches up against the Mav against the Clippers. He does, he guards Kawhi, right? And he does a good job getting into Kawhi's body. He's really physical with him. Kawhi probably hits some jumpers over him, but he's doesn't, Kawhi can't bully PJ Tucker. Then in the Mavericks, uh, Luka Doncic, you throw PJ Tucker at Luka Doncic. He's probably going to get blown by, but he's not going to be physical with him the way he was physical with like Patrick Beverly. Then, um, and then who else? I'm like, it just was so. This Suns team was probably the worst team they could have played. Like, if you throw him on LeBron, yeah, it's not going to work. But at least he makes LeBron work on def- on offense, right? And this Suns team doesn't have any forwards like that. Like, Mikhail Bridges isn't like that. Jake Crowder's not like that, and Cam Johnson's certainly not like that. So you have – this is not a good P.J. Tucker series. They need to take him off the floor. And you brought up Lopez being awesome all around. In game one, everyone's like, oh, Brooke Lopez, terrible defense on Chris Paul. No, he was actually playing really good defense. Chris Paul is just Chris Paul. Like, what do you expect? Like, yeah, could he have gotten into the body a little more? Sure. Did they probably switch too easily in game one? Yes. But Brooke was awesome. I don't think that there's really any denying how awesome he was in game one. And I don't think he should have played. I, he should have played more than 28 minutes yesterday. I don't really understand. And I have to give Bud credit, right? He's not been great in these playoffs, but he's been a lot better than I think any of us expected him to be. And I, I, I still just think Brooke should have played more last night. I mean, I would love to meet the people that are complaining about Brooke Lopez's defense on a point guard. Like how, how is that an actual criticism? I don't like people are stupid. Like I just heard a lot of post-game analysis like, oh, why is he, you know, why is he switching on the CP3, which is a fair criticism, but he did a good job when he did it. It's not like he was doing poorly, like, and on Booker too. Like those guys are just elite mid-range shot hitters. I personally would have just let them go to the rim and met Giannis there, but the Suns just they're dangerous because they have so many ways to beat you because that's a, that's still a flawed strategy even against the Suns. But I mean, yeah, you're right. 
the, you shouldn't be criticizing a center's defense against a point guard. But I think that there, I saw a lot of people criticizing the defensive game plan when really the Suns in both these games have just hit more shots than the Bucks have. Yeah, I don't. I almost want to say the Bucks have been good on defense, like especially last night, the second half. They made a lot of plays. It's just again, this this Suns team is so like fluid on offense. They have so many pieces. It's just hard to keep track. Like we haven't talked about Bridges, but he was great last night. His like he is what unlocks that offense because he's such a great cutter. So you have two great ball handlers you need to pay attention to. You have Aiton down low, who's been a load all season. You know, you got to you gotta pick your poison. And, you know, a lot of those nights, those guys are going to beat you. But a game like last night, Bridges is going to get loose. And you can have the best defense in the world. It's hard to corral a guy like that. They can hit open threes in the corner especially and is such a good cutter. And is getting better at creating his own shot. So – you know, I it's pro I, I haven't locked in on their defense too much. I don't think it's been their problem, though. I think offense has been their problem. Yeah. And let's let's save the defense talk for maybe later for maybe next week, but let's talk about Giannis real quick before we move on to the Suns. I mean, Dylan, a lot I remember all the criticism of Giannis after the 2019 Eastern Conference Finals. Like, oh, is he going to be the guy that can get it done? And I think Giannis at this point has basically shut up all criticism. Like, what a fucking game from Giannis. What a, like, performance. Like, with the injured knee, 42-12-4 in three blocks on 15-22 shooting and 11-18 from the foul line. Like, that was the Shaq performance we've all been waiting for. Like, and if they don't, if they don't win this series, then I don't think that's a reflection on him. I'll just say that. Yeah. I mean, it was funny. The, the tale of, of third quarters, like the first game we were talking about how he was absent and that was huge for the Suns. last night, the highest scoring third quarter since Michael Jordan. Are you fucking kidding me? Like he had 20 points in the third quarter. LeBron hasn't done it. KD hasn't done it. Harden hasn't done it. Kawhi hasn't done it. Like, I was shocked when they had that statistic up that I think Jordan in 92 or 93 was the last one to do that. I mean, that's big time right there. Like, that, he was huge. And, you know, you mentioned this when we were talking about Ben Simmons. The difference between Giannis and Ben Simmons is that Giannis isn't scared to get fouled, even though he's going to miss a lot. And listen, last night, 11 of 18, you take that every time. That's above 50%. I think anything above 50% you you take because he's going to get a lot of attempts. You know, if you're above eight, if you're above 50% on 18 attempts, that's a lot of free points right there. And you're putting the other team into foul trouble too. You know, when you get late in the game and you know, three of your best players have four fouls, you can't just go to Giannis fouling that all the time. Cause it's going to, it's going to hurt you. So, you know, the Suns have been up enough where, you know, the hack-a-shack model hasn't really been implemented, but they've been hack-a-shacking throughout the game, and it really hasn't hurt them to this point as much. I mean, you know, you still take one point over two if you're the Suns because that's what a lot of the 
that's what a lot of it is. You're you're fouling him on an easy layup so he can maybe make one. You know, that's that's their their hope is that he makes one or less. And it works a lot, but it also helped him get the 42 points. <laughs> right. So, you know, and you could again, as I said earlier, you can tell he's not 100 percent healthy. He gets knocked around sometimes and you can see him grabbing at that knee. So he's he fought through a lot last night and he was he was tremendous. Yeah, he just what a like I don't really have the words to describe how I felt watching that performance other than holy shit. Like we we've known Giannis is a superstar, right? Like I'd say especially the two of us. Like we've known he's been a superstar for a while. But this was like the first holy shit game Giannis has had in the playoffs. Where like and obviously they still lost, but he gave everything he had. He, you know, to to use a um a Charles Barkley phrase, there's there was no bullets left in the chamber. Like he gave everything he had. I mean, they still lost, and we'll talk about the Suns because I feel like we have to talk about how good they are. We can't not give the Suns credit, but Giannis just hold like 100 definitive superstar performance. Dare I say? If they won, I would say Hall of Fame performance. Not like, I may be taking it a little too out of proportion, but like, holy shit. Like, he had 42 of the team's 108 points in a game where they lost by 10. If anybody else stepped up, they win that game easily. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's again, that's the problem is that the supporting cast hasn't been there. And last night was tough to watch. I mean, 9 of 31 from 3, like – that was a lot of open looks because Giannis again had four people in the paint surrounding him. A lot of open looks. And there was a lot of moments where Drew Holiday had an open look. He passed it up to dribble. Uh, you know, Pat Conton again was the one guy that was really hitting four of nine. Huge. Bryn Forbes wasn't great. He only played six minutes, which a little surprising because he was pretty good in game one. But yeah, it's again, you got to put, I think you just got to put Portis in there because he just adds a lot more of a dynamic element on offense. Because hey, he can like attack a closeout, you know, and that that sets up a, a next shot. Because if you're just gonna have Giannis get into the paint and and guys pass up open threes, you're screwed. And I don't think I don't think Portis would do that because Portis. The thing about Portis is he's not scared either, and. That's I think that's been something that's been going for him ever since the draft. I mean, this dude is electric. <laughs> he's got the eyes popping out of his head. Like, he's ready to go. And I don't know. Some of these guys, like Drew Holiday, looks scared to miss. P.J. Tucker just doesn't want to shoot. So, it's really, it's really hurting their offensive flow. And, again, Bobby Portis, I think, helps you there. And Bryn Forbes, again, I, I don't think Bryn Forbes should have played six minutes last night either. No. And – I guess if there was one criticism of Bud after last night, it's just the rotations. That's pretty much it. But, I mean, when you go back and look at P.J. Tucker, I'm looking at his uh, playoff stats from previous years. I mean, okay, I guess in Houston he was bombing. He was 4.4, 5.2, and 5.6 in terms of attempts per game when he was in Houston. Probably should be shooting close to that much, I would say. But I think that... Again, this is just not a PJ Tucker series, but I think we spent enough time on the Bucks. We are really optimistic on the Bucks, even in spite of them losing these first two games. But we got to give the Suns a lot of credit. They're up 2-0. Um, 
Devin Booker last night, you brought up that it might have been the best game of his whole career. Like, I would the best game I think I've seen him play too. Like, just what a phenomenal game from Devin Booker. Like, just he was all over the place. His playmaking has gotten so much better. What if, okay, I know you've been following the league very closely for a long time. Let's just big picture it on this. What's the biggest improvement you've seen from young Devin Booker's game to now? I don't think he's that different of a player than what he was a few years ago. I think, I honestly think Chris Paul being in there with him has just been huge. Like, look at, we've talked about Donovan Mitchell, how much better he is with Mike Conley out there. I, I honestly think there's just some, some of these guys, they just need someone to help set them up a little bit more. And Devin Booker has not had that. So we can say he's gotten better as a passer and like, you know, numbers aren't everything. Sometimes it's just vision, which is something you have to see. It like the numbers don't always show it. And yes, like I think we can say that his passing has gotten stronger. He's making like I forget who hit it, but he it may have been Tory Craig. Um Devin Booker was in the corner and he attacks the closeout and whips it with his left hand to the top of the key. Like that kind of stuff, you know may have been a turnover a few years ago. So that kind of stuff, he's definitely gotten better. But as far as shot making, I honestly think Chris Paul being there has helped uh, DeAndre Aiden screens. You know, like a lot of times it's just the talent around you. And before last year, Devin Booker basically had none. And now he has a lot. So it, it makes him look a lot better and it helps him do what he's good at even more efficiently. Yeah, I mean – you got Crowder, you got Bridges. Those are two great guys to have on the wings beside you. You brought up eight in the screen setting. I mean, his passing has been a revelation, though. Like, there was, you brought up the left hand. He made another left handed pass into the paint. And I think it drew, someone got a foul. I think that might have been an eight in play where he got two free throws. Cause I know he had the and one later in the game, but I think he threw, he whipped a pass to Aiton and got him two free throws. And just like his passing has gotten so much better. And I think the shooting has kind of gotten a little worse, but it feels like the pace that he plays that he plays at the mid range shot is always going to be there for him. Just like, it feels like he, that's always available to him. Now, my question to you, Dylan Hughes, it's a very simple one. Do you think Devin Booker will shoot seven to 12 in game three or four in Milwaukee from three? Uh, no, I mean, again, like he, his efficiency, this playoffs has been, bad a lot especially against the Clippers so I don't expect him to shoot well from anywhere on the floor especially not that well uh but yeah I think that's a number that's probably due for some regression that was his career high for makes in a uh, game from three like which is surprising considering he scored 70 points before yeah I didn't look that up I probably should have I was on stat muse but the 70 point game was not in there and his huh. career high before this was six. I didn't see how much he... Let me pull up the 70-point game real quick. See how many threes he made in that game. But, oh, uh, let's see. 70... That was in his second year in the league. <laughs> Devin Booker, 4 of 11 from three hmm. in that game. If I recall correctly, he was just unstoppable. Like, no one could stop him from getting to the rim. <laughs> he was 21 of 40. And 24 or 26 from the foul line. Oh, a lot of free throws, yeah. Remember when there was even a if, bunch? Even if you take all those free throws away, that's what, 44 points? <laughs> that's yeah. just crazy. I mean, remember when all those haters were like, oh, 
why are you uh why are you celebrating this after a loss like they didn't just get absolutely torched by by Devin Booker I know the loss is temporary 70 points is forever I mean I I I kind of understand the criticism because a lot of guys just get benched at a certain point like how many points would Clay Thompson have scored against the Pacers that game if he played 10 more minutes Oh God. I mean, it could have been like 200. I mean, the way he was shooting that game. He could have, I think he would have easily broke 81. Yeah. I wish, I wish Kerr had kept him in the game because I think he could have had 81 that game. I'm not joking. I mean, it was just crazy. Like, wasn't it 29 minutes? Yeah. Like that, that is insane. Even if he just played a few more minutes, he could have gotten a 70. Like he was unstoppable. And like, he is, he gets the ball up so quick. Like, Everyone, I think he is still the most likely player in the league to like ever break 80 or even 70 next because he is just incredibly efficient with the ball. Like, not only does he make it so much, but he barely touches the ball. Like, he's wasting almost zero time to score three points. It's just insane. So, a little bit of story time here. I don't know if you. I went to the first Warriors game in Indiana that year. This is before the 60-point game, I believe. And I just remember, because you remember, that was the Monte Ellis team. Or that was mm. when Monte Ellis was still playing. And I just remember Clay could have had 60 in that game. And he, ha- I think he finished with 25. But Clay was open every single time he shot. Like, I'm not exaggerating. Like, every single time. Because Monte, Monte was never anyone's idea of... Uh, of Tony Allen, but especially in that in those two games against the Warriors, who buddy, that he was not the guy you want guarding Clay Thompson in 2017. Not the guy you want guarding Clay Thompson. Did he did he hit a game winner that game? Because he hit one here. I don't know what year it was. I think I think I was at that game too. That might have been 2014. No, it was later than that. Hmm. It was. It's it had to have been within the past four years. Because I went to a Warrior, I went to the Warriors Pacers game like before the Warriors, the year before I think they. So that was the year they I think had the eighth seed, and they took the Spurs. I don't maybe that was I don't know if that did did they beat the Spurs while they were um, a lower seed one year? No, they played the Spurs in the second round the year they the Spurs lost to um, the Heat. Okay, and they, I think they took two games off them. Yeah, see that that was the year, and I remember that was like basically Curry's breakout year because like we all knew Curry was going to be good, but he just had the the ankle injuries, and I think he dropped thirty eight here. The very next dry night, he drops like fifty three in the Garden, and that mm. was like that was like the moment. And people still talk about it. I always hear people talk about. It. I'm like, yeah, I was at the game the night before. He had thirty eight here, and. uh that was like the Steph Curry breakout and David Lee and uh, Roy Hibber got into a fight pretty close to me. So that was fun. But yeah, that was the year before they really broke out. So that was, that was my fun Warriors memory as we're you're talking. At, about. <laughs> you're at the game before the game. Incredible. Exactly. <laughs> Incredible. A, that That's all I have to my name is I was at the Steph Curry game before the Steph Curry game. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Listen, that's just the way it works sometimes. But uh, let's let's get this train back on the tracks here. Um, should we talk about DeAndre Ayton? I want to approach this very delicately. 
because Zach Griffith um, proclaimed DeAndre Ayton the third best center in the NBA. I love Zach Griffith. I did not agree with this opinion. I know anything I say can and will be used against me in the court of Zach Griffith. So I have to be very careful here. But I mean, Dylan, that was just a weird game from Ayton last night. Like he was missing some, like he looked really weak with the ball sometimes. He made his last two shots, but he was two of eight at one point. Like, I know they won the game, but am I wrong to still be concerned about DeAndre Ayton? No, because, yeah, I agree. Like, game one, he was a monster. I mean, he was cutting to the rim off screens. Like, he was uh, he was juiced up. Like, he was ready to kill them, and he did kill them. And last night, he just looked odd. Like, And, yeah, I think putting Giannis down there more often definitely frazzled him a bit. But, yeah, he didn't look as strong with the ball. He just looked a little bit out of it. Defensively, I don't think he was terrible, but – he definitely wasn't as good as game one. So, you know, I don't exactly know what happened, um, but I mean, he's, a, he's still a young guy. This is his first playoffs. Like maybe confidence is waning. I don't know, but I'm, I'm not concerned about it because Chris Paul is always in his ear and Chris Paul, by the way, is a major reason why he's played so well this year. Monty Williams was giving him like a nice, uh, sideline talk they showed on on TV. So I'm not worried about him, but it it was a bit concerning, and it definitely uh, made the Suns' job a little bit tougher to kind of extend the lead. They had a huge time step up from Mikhail Bridges, which we'll talk about. But I mean, the Chris Paul, the Chris Paul role in Aiden's surgeons. I you can't say resurgence because there was nothing to resurge from, but. The Chris Paul aid in that is like really undeniable. Like, yeah, Aiden's super duper talented, but he never looked this good ever in his NBA career. And I, I know he looked bad last night, but the he raised the bar so high that that looked disappointing. When in reality, this is about what you would expect from a third year from a third year center in a finals game, right? You would expect that. But DeAndre Aiden's played so well that you're like, oh wow. This is kind of disappointing. Why is he playing so poorly? And you have to give him props for raising that bar, but then you also have to be like, okay, this is your bar now. You have to play to that. And it could be physical. I doubt it's mental because you're right. Chris Paul's in his ear, but it could it very well could be physical. Like he's played a lot of minutes this postseason. I'm going to pull up the totals real quick, but he's played about 38 minutes every game. He's played 657 minutes these playoffs. That's basically like a third of a regular year. (laughs) And in addition, let me pull up how many minutes he played in the regular season. So he played 21, 15 minutes in the regular season. They have at least two more games. Um, Odds are he'll, if this is a long series, he'll be at 800 minutes by the 850 minutes by the time this is over, meaning he'll almost have played as many minutes in this season as he did in 2018, 19 and 2019, 20 combined. So he might just be tired, but he's going to, he's like, I don't think that there's going to be a more important player going forward for them other than Booker going forward the next three games. Cause I think Chris Paul will get tired and I think Jay Crowder might get tired. So Aiden has to step up huge time for them. Yeah. And that's what I was talking about earlier. Like these young guys are going to be the guys that are going to have to really step up with the depth problem. Cause again, that bench not offering a lot of help. I mean, as much as I love Cam Johnson, 
he just has been kind of underwhelming these playoffs. Um, and also he needs to be set up, you know? So like a lot of these guys, these younger guys need to be set up, including Aiden. So that's why Booker to me is going to be very interesting to watch. You know, last night we saw it, it worked out well, but again, if he has a bad night, a lot of these other guys are going to have a bad night too. And if, if these older guys are tired and Aiden's tired from playing so many minutes, then, you know, it's going to get, it's going to get tricky for him. Yeah. And I think that Chris Paul, Drew Holiday played really good defense on Chris Paul last night. It didn't show in the shooting percentages and he did what he did in game one to a much lesser extent with putting the foot on the buck's throat, like on offensive rebounds, catch and shoot threes. But the shooting reflection doesn't, the shooting percentage doesn't reflect how well Drew guarded Chris Paul, in my opinion. And you, I think you brought up the six turnovers. Like, when's the last time you saw Chris Paul have six turnovers in a playoff game? Like, maybe in the first round, outside of this year's first round, when it looked like his arm was going to fall off. When is the last time Chris Paul had six turnovers in a playoff game? Like, he's the point guard for a reason. Yeah, I don't know if I've ever seen Chris Paul have six turnovers in any game. I mean, I'm sure he has, but it's very rare. Like, that's that's one thing that we always hinge on with Chris Paul is that he never turns the ball over. So it was pretty shocking. And, yeah, like, you got to give Drew Holiday credit for that. And, you know, we expect Drew Holiday to give these guys trouble. I mean, I think in the first two games, like, efficiency-wise, like, Paul and Booker haven't been outstanding. They haven't been bad, but they haven't been, you know – well above 50% like we saw in some other other series. So, yeah, I mean, Drew Holiday's impact on defense is definitely worth mentioning. But, again, the offense is another story. But, yeah, I mean, Chris Paul, six turnovers, like that's – he still gets above the, the one assist-to-turnover ratio because that's what he does. But it's, it's a little bit closer. And, I mean, Chris Paul be – I mean, that'll be the day – when he's under the one-to-one assist-to-turnover ratio. But I think now's a good time to talk about the guy who stepped up huge for you. For you and for the Suns, Dylan Hughes, Mikhail Bridges, victory lap time. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, he's he's outdoing his, uh, his future self and Chris Middleton. I mean, Chris Middleton Jr. outduels the senior. It's, it was pretty amazing to watch. But, I mean, this – this is what I've been talking about all year. Like, this is the kind of guy he's capable of becoming. And I still think he has a long way to go before he is like what Chris Middleton is now. I almost kicked my water over doing this. I'm trying to figure out, because I was thinking about this lately. You know, a lot of people could say, oh, well, like, he's never going to be as good of a shot creator as Chris Middleton because, you know, he's hasn't shown enough and yeah, like he still has a long way to go, but I want to see like how old Chris Middleton was when he really became this level of himself because he's 29 right now and he turns 30 in, in August. He didn't, he before last or before 2019, he averaged more than 20 points a game once. So like he didn't really become this version of himself until he was like maybe 26 at youngest. How old is Mikhail Bridges? Like 22, 23? He's 24. Okay. He might be 25 soon. But still, like he's 
he has a good amount of time to catch up. And I mean, he's, he's not that far away. Like, again, he still has a lot of work to do on his own shot creation, but he's got everything else down. Like he, he is literally a more consistent isolation game away from being like one of the best scores in the league. Maybe not numbers wise, but like efficiency. I mean, Middleton, the past two years, or yeah, the past two years, 50% from the field, 48%. Like a lot of these really good scores we have in the league are, are in the lower 40s because they shoot a lot. Middleton is really efficient. And I think uh, Bridges is going to be the same way. Like he doesn't waste uh, possessions of the ball much. So it was really good to see that last night. And again, I think we're going to keep seeing it over time. Yeah. And you know, Bridges has it going. Like one of the things I love from Bridges the most and he doesn't do this every game, but when he breaks out that like little mid-range fadeaway, he, for whatever reason, that looks like it's money. It's like, we talk about the wingspan all the time. Most guys with wingspan don't shoot as well as Mikhail Bridges does. Like they just don't. And he, the mid-range jumper is unblockable from him if he gets to it, because it's like, you're basically Kevin Durant's height getting the shot off. <laughs> and if you're being guarded by like a six, eight guy, they still can't reach that. So his shot is just ridiculously efficient and he's still, you know, money from three when it counts. Like, I don't think he, I think he was like one for his last seven from three. Cause I think he made it the first two, but it didn't matter because he was chipping in. He had, he was five of six on uh five of six on twos and then eight of eight from the foul line. And obviously a couple of those were at the end of the game. So like more like six of six, but still, if he can get to the foul line and make mid range jumpers, I mean, he might be a, like, a, he's not this now, but if he can develop a consistent mid range jumper, he's going to be a top 30 guy in the NBA, just based on everything else he can do. Yeah. And Man, I was talking about efficiency, and, and this is only nine shots a game, but this year, 72 games, which is all of them, by the way, 54, 42, 84 splits, 13 and a half points a game. And this is while playing alongside a Hall of Fame point guard, one of the best scorers in the league, and one of the best centers in the league. So it's not like he's getting a ton of opportunity. Like, he's playing off of these guys, and yes – like that's getting him easier shots. Like he's he gets a lot of open threes. That's that's hundred percent true. But he's not getting the opportunity to be a go-to score like a Chris Middleton is, and he's still having games like this. So yeah, I mean, I still think the sky's the limit for him. Here's a, here's a question for you. This might be inflammatory. <laughs> Something I just thought of. Obviously, you know, this gets brought up every time you bring up. Mikhail Bridges, invariably somebody brings up that the 76ers traded him for Zaire Smith, which I mean, I'm not going to bring up for your sake because I know Zaire Smith is still very close to your heart. Here's a question for you, though. If you replaced Tobias Harris with Mikhail Bridges, do you think you get more efficient production from that third spot? Like genuinely asking. I don't even know like if that's a joke. It's not a joke. I'm being 100% serious. Tobias Harris shot like 8 of 24 every other game. I don't think it would take much to get more efficient production. <laughs> Plus, you're going to get way better defense. So, yeah. And also, by the way, you might save about $38 million a year 
<laughs> I mean, you could, I don't know, like it would be interesting to see. Well, Mikhail Bridges right now is the easy, like we say he's the third option, but really like when you factor in campaign during the regular season, he was like their fifth option. Like, so jumping from the fifth to the third option is a huge jump. Now, granted, it's in the Eastern Conference, but I still think that it's an interesting question to ponder. Like, what's he going to do when the usage increases? And because it's going to have to at some point, like Chris Paul isn't going to be here forever. He, there's, there's, that's just not possible. Human, the human body states that he will have to be done at some point in probably the next five years <laughs> at absolute best case scenario. So you wonder what's going to happen with Mikhail Bridges in the future and like how they're going to offset that future loss. Again, we're talking extreme long-term, but you're right. If Mikhail can do this and he can step into that second, third option role, then they're going to be like, I think they'll be completely fine after Chris Paul. Yeah. And I was kind of laughing the other night when you're texting me about future plans for the Suns as if they're not in the finals right now, but you know, as you were talking, I just thought about something. I think the Suns are almost guaranteed to win this finals because this has been the year of the old man. Okay, Tom Brady, Super Bowl. Tom Brady, by the way, beats this, you know, ascending Hall of Fame quarterback, young as hell, kills him. You could look at Giannis the same way, maybe. Uh, Phil Mickelson, we were talking pre-pod, just won PGA Championship, 51 years old. And Chris Paul, basically 51 years old as well. I mean, this is the year of the old man. I, I actually, I'm almost convinced now the Suns are going to win. How dare you insult P.J. Tucker this way, the year of the old man. But, <laughs> I mean, the way the universe is shifting, I could definitely see it. But also, I just feel like, okay, anything else you want to say about the Suns before we move on to, like, obviously we both still are writing Bucks and Seven. But, like, I feel like we should give cases for that before we bury the Hawks. Um, any other Suns thoughts? Like any other Suns players you want to talk about before we move on for the week? I would like to see campaign a little bit more involved. Like when he's out there, he's really good. And then he's just not out there. So I don't know. I mean, again, you got two way better guards, but I don't know. I feel like, you know, 10 minutes a game is a little bit light. And especially when Chris Paul, we're talking about the age stuff. It's not going to be good for him for long term in this series if he keeps playing 42 minutes. Exactly. So, um, let's go ahead. Are you sticking with Bucks and Seven? Ugh, I combined Bucks and Suns. Um, are you still sticking with Bucks and Seven after this long thought out discussion about the first two games of the series? Yeah, because again, I think the Bucks size advantage is going to be huge. I think. It's kind of funny that the Bucks actually have better depth at this point, considering DiVincenzo again. If they had DiVincenzo, they may win this in five or six games. Like he would add that much. Cause I I mean, like we've talked about him already, but he's just good at everything. <laughs> he's not great at anything, but he's good at everything. And that has been tough to replace. So but they still have they've been able to pull it together and I still think they have the most talent. And, you know, Again, like, this Suns team is awesome. We've loved them all year. If they win, I'll be happy as hell, and they deserve it. 
but I just think the Bucks team is more talented. They have bigger size, and their depth is just a little bit stronger. And again, Giannis is going to get healthier. I would really be shocked if Middleton has another bad game like that. And, you know, Drew Holiday wouldn't be shocked if he has another bad game, but hopefully it'll be better than that. So I I still think Bucks and seven is, is my prediction. Yes, I'm going with Bucks and seven too, and here's why. The Suns, with all due respect, have had their backs against the wall exactly zero times in these playoffs. How many times in the last three years has this Bucks team had the, their backs against the wall? 2019 against the against the Raptors, they folded. 2020 against the Heat, they folded. 2021 against the Nets, they did not fold. And I think that we've seen this Bucks team in particular, they've just have been incredibly mentally tough. And I'm not saying the Suns haven't been, because I've been really impressed with the Suns. I love everything they've done this year. I wouldn't be happy to see them. I wouldn't I wouldn't be mad to see them win. But I think the Bucks, just from like, because they're, <laughs> we didn't bring this up, Objectively, sometimes the way they play basketball is just absolutely terrible. Like, they really sometimes are a terrible basketball team. But it hasn't mattered. They shouldn't have beat the Nets, but they did. They probably, if they played the 76ers, they probably wouldn't have beat the 76ers. If Trey hadn't gotten hurt, you could say they wouldn't have beat the Hawks. But guess what? They did. They've gotten through every obstacle so far. They crushed the Heat after the Heat crushed them in last year's playoffs. I mean, this team, Dylan, the... The Bucs have just been so incredibly resilient these whole playoffs. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty clear that beating that Nets team was like the hump they needed to get over. And, you know, we were wondering about the Hawks team a little bit, and obviously Trey got injured. Uh, but the Bucs didn't have Giannis either, and they still put him away. And, like, you know, that Hawks team, obviously very young. Uh, Bucks killed them in talent-wise. But that that was a really, really strong team. And we're about to talk about them, but yes, you know, I mean, the Bucks put them away. So I, I think they've, they've kind of gotten that little, little bit of uh, a warrior spirit this year. I don't know where they've, they've really pulled through a lot of challenges and come out on top. So I, I just think as you kind of talked about, they're more battle tested and, and ready to, to claw their way back. Agree. That's a good note to end the finals discussion on. Now let's go ahead and uh, bury the Hawks real quick. Um, you want to talk about a resilient team. <laughs> this team really had their backs against the wall against the Sixers. They go, they're down 2-1. They go, they rally back and get up 3-2. And then they lose game six and they lose Bogdanovich. But then Kevin Herter steps up in game seven and Kevin Herter wins them a game seven, right? Then you have in the uh, in the Bucks series, Trey Young, 48 points in game one. They win game one. They lose the next two. They then come out. Trey gets hurt in game three, come out in game four, and they beat the Bucs at full strength. Well, not at full strength because Giannis got hurt, but at almost full strength, like 30 minutes into the game, they were leading by 10, right? This Hawks team, they didn't ever quit. And I heard on a podcast, someone's like, this is not the 2019 Blazers where they made the conference finals and they basically were like, okay, this was your one shot. I think the Hawks are here to stay. John Collins is a restricted free agent next year, but they, they're going to bring him back at 25 million. And the real question is, what are you going to do once Trey, Trey and Herter become restricted free agents? But Dylan, I think if you were willing to pay all the guys, it's not like Herter's going to get some, you know, 25 million a year contract. I think he'll get like 10 million a year, but 
I think this team is in a really good spot going forward with all the young guys they have and with the mix of veterans they have in Gallinari and Bogdanovich and Capella. Yeah, they're going to be fine money-wise because Capella's on a good deal. Hunter has two years and Reddish has two years. So, like, two really important pieces moving forward are going to be on rookie deals. As you mentioned, Herder is probably going to get, like, Capella range maybe, maybe a little bit more. Like, I would guess between 12 and 15 would be fair probably. Um, so, you know, you're, they're going to be over the cap, but they have a lot of really talented guys. Like, it's it's going to be worth it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Collins was like a question all year whether he would be traded or not. But I think they did a good job figuring out how to play those three guys to get, like, not together, but – all, they just tried to – they fit them all in nicely, Gallo, Capella, and Collins. And injuries helped. I mean, Capella missed some time. Gallo missed some time. So, it helped, you know, get Collins in there. But, I mean, he was massive in the playoffs, like multiple multiple points. So, they, they really don't have an option but to sign him. But, uh, the thing is, I'm just curious about the money. Like – We've seen some guys over the past few years, like Sabonis, Jalen Brown. Uh, there's been a few others that have made, like, you know, in that in the 18 to 21 range, Miles Turner. Like, I, I think that is probably where he should fall. If he gets anything more than that, and he will probably, like from a team like Minnesota, you know, like one of these teams that has money. Memphis, a little bit of a, like, would that shock you? I don't think it would shock me. Mm-hmm. If they went that direction, they have money to spend. And what else are they going to do? Like we could have a whole nother podcast about Memphis, but they're not going to get free agents. Like they have, I think that's the pathways is to spend on restricted guys. And again, John Collins could be a guy. So there's, they're going to get bidders. Sacramento, I think would be smart to look at that. Like there's going to be guys, uh, teams out there that, that throw him money. And if you, if you get up to 25, 26, you know, looking ahead for the Hawks, I don't know. That may be a little bit too much, but it's it's hard after those playoffs to let him go at the same time. So it's it's going to be fascinating to see how their offseason plays out. Yeah, and I think you're right. Like, he doesn't probably – he's not better than Sabonis. He's not better than Miles, I don't think. But the way he played in the postseason, somebody can look at that and be like, okay, this guy can do the dirty work and can score. And that's what we need. Like, that's a – pretty much prototypical big man. Now his defense still leaves a lot to be desired. Like I thought he was really good, but you know what my main appeal for bringing John Collins back is, is that if a star demands out, who's in a better position to capitalize on that than the Atlanta Hawks, right? Because you're not going to be able to keep all these guys anyway. And let's just say you sign Collins to like a $23 million contract, right? You pair that with Gallinari, and you pair that with, let's just say, Reddish, who I – listen, Caleb, this is a direct message to Caleb Lynn, all right? It's going to suck. You're going to have to give up Reddish or Hunter if you're going to want to get a star. But you, the nice thing about having both of them is – and Collins, you're not going to have to give up both of them. So unless it's like super – like unless it's like Anthony Davis level star, like then you're going to have to give up both of them. But that scenario is very unlikely. Um, but – you have so many so many options there to trade for a star should one become available. You're and plus you're in Atlanta. You're in a very desirable market for NBA players. Dylan, let me ask you this. 
is have all doubts about Trey Young been basically, you know, are all the doubts over at this point where like <laughs> Trey Young, you can't say Trey Young's not a winning player because we watched what he did through the whole playoffs. Yeah, I mean, my biggest issue with him was that he shot too much. And as soon as middle, uh, as soon as McMillan came in, his shot diet changed a lot. Like the the Trey focused, Trey centered offense went away, and obviously, look what it did for him. They made it to the conference final. So, I mean, we talked on previous pods. Like there was a lot of games where he scored thirty points and made like just a handful of threes. Like his game has become a lot less reliant on threes, which is good because as we know. Even the best shooters miss. If you can get into the paint consistently, that's that's what you're going to fall back on. So, you know, for me personally, I have no doubts about him now. Um, offensively, especially, like, defense is out the window already, so not even worth talking about. But, yeah, like, it's hard to complain about anything. And, like, especially the confidence. I mean, every building he goes into, he, he feeds off that energy. I mean, some of those Knicks, like – you know, confrontations with the fans were so fun to watch. Like, uh, you have 20,000 people saying, fuck Trey Young, and he's just looking back at him smiling. Like, there's a lot of players that would get in their head, and he embraced it. So, I mean, I think he made a lot of fans uh, this postseason, and he definitely proved a lot of people wrong and also a lot of people right. Yeah, well, Trey for the playoffs – in 16 games, averaged 29 points a game, 48% from two, only 31% from three on nine attempts. But he got to the line eight times a game and 9.5 assists. I mean, the man was just ridiculous on offense. And plus, he wasn't a complete defensive liability because he was chipping in some steals, too. Like, he was jumping passing lanes. So, yes, Trey's not the greatest offensive defensive player of all time, clearly. But he wasn't getting... I mean, maybe it's just the teams that were playing him didn't have the capabilities of targeting him, but no one really targeted him like that because they weren't really able to. So I think that he, to me, solidified his place as like one of the best players in the league. Like, sure, there's no way he's going to miss an all-star game ever again. There's going to be no way. I mean, he's going to be an all-NBA contender for the next – I mean, the guard spot is so deep, but he should be an all-NBA contender for the next seven, eight years, I would say, probably conservatively. And I think last Hawks question, Dylan, do you think this Hawks team can make the top three in the East next year? Do you think that they could be a top three seed in the Eastern conference next year? Hmm. I think they could. I mean, so you look at Brooklyn, you look at Milwaukee and you look at Boston. I would say those are the three biggest hurdles i would say miami you know you could throw in there philly yeah i intentionally left philly out of there. i mean regular season obviously is different we'll see i'm still i still think they have a big off season coming but we'll see but i mean i think they could definitely be better than philly over the course of the season i think they could be better than boston because we don't know who the hell's playing point guard and brooklyn i definitely think is probably going to be a buzzsaw but they also may have half their roster injured at any given time. So who really knows uh, what's ahead of us? But the talent's there, and they got the coach locked in. So if they're not top three, it's going to be one of those years where the top five is all really close together. 
And like on any normal year, you know, we talked last week, they could win 50 games. And if you're winning 50 games and you're not top three, that was a really good year for the East. Yeah. Yeah, I think that there's a real chance the Nets go for 65. If they're if they all stay healthy, which is not a pos- is not a they, certain. I don't even think they need to. I mean, they've added so much depth. Like Blake Griffin was awesome when they got him. And you know, Blake Griffin can be injured too, but if if Durant or Harden or whatever go out, like Kyrie, I mean, so maybe you flip Spencer Dinwiddie for something. You got Blake Griffin, you got Bruce Brown, who's a restricted free agent, so maybe you don't. But I would imagine they try to bring him back. Like they've got they've got good depth. So even if they have injured, I think they can still push it. <laughs> Daniel Tice could end up going yeah. to the I think Daniel Tice to the Nets. I'm not reporting this, but I just feel like that's gonna happen. Like it makes too much sense for all parties involved. Yep. So yeah, they're going to be a juggernaut next year, but the Hawks, man, they're in a really great position. And if let's just say, you know, like hell, you could trade Gallinari and something else. Like one of the young guys for Simmons, if you wanted to go that route, like, I don't know if they will, but you could do that. If you think that that's going to help your team immensely again, I don't know if I do that, but there's so many avenues for the Hawks to get better, but I think we've said everything we need to say about the Hawks. So let's go ahead and uh, close the pod from one young soul to another. All right. Um, I'm trying to think of something off the top of my head. So $7.50 on for a hardcover, $5 for the E edition. Um, if you don't buy this, I'll go to either your local, your local swimming pool, your friend's house, or just your house. And I'll ruin the pool. N- uh, no, that's a little too far. We know what that even. means. <laughs> I'll just pour a bunch of gravel in your pool if you have one. Mm-hmm. If you don't have one, I'll buy you a kiddie pool and pour gravel in that. So I'm costing myself money to make sure you buy Dylan Hughes's book. I mean, come on now. I'm not asking for too much. Am I, Dylan? I think a shit in the pool is fair. I mean, listen, you, you're really excited. Like, it's a hot day. You want to go to the pool. Oh man, we're gonna spend a good two hours at the pool. It's gonna be great. And then you walk up and you just see a big shit in the pool, and it ruins your day. I mean, I I fuck the gravel. Like we're not gonna we're not gonna go with the gravel, even though the gravel would take longer to fix. I think the the mental toll of seeing a shit in a pool that's that's worth it right there. You know. This is the first time you've come up with one that's been better than mine. And it was a much needed addition because admittedly, this was by far my my weakest one by far. But I'm, you know, this is the problem with trying to top yourself every week, Dylan. You can't always do it. You can't. I'm, I'm putting way too much pressure on myself. <laughs> it's just like DeAndre eight, man. Like, you know, sometimes a 10 point 11 rebound game isn't enough because you've set the high bar. So, you know, don't feel bad, but. When you said ruin your pool, that's instantly what I thought of. I thought that's where you were going. Um, so, you know, the yeah, it, it's it's the pathway we need to take, and we will take it. Listen, you know, sometimes you need a little help to get to where you need to go, and that was clearly what happened with me and Dylan there. Um, Divine Rhyme, I got the episode from last week. That'll, I'm putting that out on a Saturday. We're going to get a Saturday running cook episode, mm-hmm. folks. Um, nice. How did how did last week's Divine Rhyme go? I know it's been a while, but Will went on vacation, so there was a little bit of extenuating circumstances there. It was good. Um, you know, 
Sturgill Simpson, just a guy me and me and Will both love. Uh, dove into two really popular albums of his and uh, got some good takeaways from it. Good discussion. So definitely one worth turning into, turning into as they all are. Yes. Well, there's never been a bad divine rhyme, so I can't imagine why I wouldn't want to tune into it. You know, just like there's never been a bad power hour. So exactly. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think. Lynn Sanity. Caleb was on vacation this week, so Bryce filled in again. Shabby Sanity. Um, Caleb will be back next week with, I believe, I'll be back with Bryce and Zach, then I'll be back with JD again. So make sure you check that out. Um, Circle City Cinema, Zach and I will be back on tomorrow for the uh, MCU show Loki, I believe. So make sure you check that out. Um, and then he'll be doing Road to Fast 9. He'll be doing Fast 7 at some point. I don't remember when exactly, but that'll be happening soon. Um, what else? I got triple option passes on hiatus ryan just started his job in wisconsin so i'm gonna probably say a couple weeks until and then we'll try again on the shoulda coulda woulda but college football is going to be starting up soon so if ryan can do it let's make sure you check that out um battleground i think we'll we'll try to get a battleground going next week there's a lot of tension between uh between bryce and uh jd right now um jd on the pod he and i did last week he called bryce trash takes so you know i've been cutting uh my social media consumption back and it seems like every time i go into the twitter chat jd is talking shit to either justin or bryce so i've been feeling the tension despite not being around as much yes the tension is there we need something to release it what's better than the battleground and then i think that's all the running hook shows make sure you check out facts and stats with jd and then make sure you check out dan dorks with dj deke um Dylan, I haven't done this in a while, but this is, this is different. It's not words of wisdom. What's a good album recommendation that you have that you've been listening to recently? If you're a big music guy. Oh, wow. Man, I've been bouncing around a lot lately. Um, I keep going back to Evolve by Future. I think got overlooked. It's like a straight through listen and no one ever talks about it. And, you know, the future discography is deep, understandable. You know, you want to go back to DS2, you want to go back to Purple Rain, you want to go back to the Beast Mode tapes, and it's like, Evolve gets overlooked. And I just think it's a straight-through solid project. You get a really good weekend feature as well. I mean, where can you go wrong? I've never listened to the album all the way through, but Low Life, JD and I, freshman year, lots of great memories from Low Life. Um, Really quick. I hadn't listened to watch the throne before Kanye and Jay-Z album. Holy mm. shit. Like that album is remarkable. Like great. Like honestly, the best production on any Kanye album. And that I'm I'm including his first couple, like really good production, just really awesome beats. And yeah, I think that like somehow it's, properly rated yet underrated at the same time if that makes sense i'll have to throw that on because i i think i've listened to it in bits and pieces but not straight through as a project so i'm gonna have to throw that on it take my word for it it's one of the best kanye albums and granted everything before uh everything from pablo and before could be categorized as really good to uh, hall of fame but I, I don't hate Pablo. I don't love it, but it, I still think it's a good album. But everything after Pablo has been a flat-out disaster. 
You know, I listen. Okay, I have two albums that I always defend to my grave. One of them's Pablo. I mean, mm-hmm. listen, I wasn't as I wasn't a Kanye fan much when I was younger, so like I didn't get a lot of that. Obviously, I've gone back and listened to it, but I think Pablo was fine. Like, if you want to compare it to his old stuff, I understand, but like, let's take it for what it is. It's a good album, okay? It may not oh, it's be good. best, and also views by Drake. Oh yeah. You, yeah. Views get shit on so much, and I just really don't get it. I don't get it at all because he's produced much worse as of late. Al, <laughs> everything from More Life on. For, I don't like More Life. More Life is hit and miss with me. Um, like the the UK grunge stuff in there, it throws it all. It's like he's mixing Caribbean with UK grunge. It's just odd. Like. It's just odd. There's some really good stuff. Passion Fruit, amazing. Uh, a handful of other songs, really good. But yeah, More Life is where it starts to fall off. <laughs> yes, I, I'm glad we could agree on that. I couldn't make it through Scorpion. Um, let's let's end this show now. Dylan Hughes, that was a really interesting last five minutes there. But once again, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you.